Good afternoon, and welcome to another edition of the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation, Fear and Trembling, An Atheist Contemplates Faith, with Dr. Peter Graham, was recorded on May 28, 2023, at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Lawrence, Kansas. Now for the main event, uh, Peter Graham is going to tell us where his mind's been over the past years. So I'll fill in a few details about where he's been physically and leave the rest to him. Um, Peter is Canadian, grew up in Toronto, the, the one in Canada, not the one in Kansas. Um, graduated from Clark University in Worcester, Mass. And then he got as far away as he could to earn his PhD at, in San Diego at the California School of Professional Psychology. He next joined a Menninger's Clinic in Topeka, following in his father's footsteps, I just learned. Um, first as a postdoc in 1992, then as a staff psychologist, and eventually as a director of a variety of programs uh, until Menninger's moved to Houston early in 2003. Since then, he's practiced in Lawrence, uh, where since 2005, he's been the director and vice president of Acumen Associates, which happens to be on West 6th Street, almost the same address as Menninger's in Topeka. Um, this is sort of the second coming of Peter to UUCL. Uh, he and his family were active here sometime after the turn of the millennium. In fact, I recall loaning them a guide to the geology of the Bright Angel Trail in Grand Canyon. So there's another facet to Peter in addition to being a psychologist and philosopher. Then he disappeared, and now we're delighted to welcome Peter back. So. It's... it's um a joy to be back. And I would like to dedicate this presentation to Graham Cracker. He's a, he's a prime example of the kind of spirit that I aspire to be. Always in a pursuit of inquiry, always devoted to his community. <clears throat> so when probably 15 years ago, Graham and I talked about uh, Soren Kierkegaard and I, I told him this was just prior to the nuclear bomb of my divorce going off. I, I had told them, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll come and talk about Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard. And uh, so when I came back this year, Graham and this week opened up. He said, will you, will you talk about Kierkegaard? And I hadn't read Kierkegaard since 1986 um, when, I was a, when I was going into my senior year of college. And uh, I took a summer reading uh, course in independent reading over the summer with this guy who had two PhDs, one in philosophy and one in psychology. Uh, Leslie Glazer was his name, wonderful man. And uh, so I thought, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll reread Fear and Trembling and try, to, and try to say something about it to the congregation. Well, let me, let me read you a paragraph and then you'll see why I'm not going to spend the, the entire time talking about Kierkegaard. <laughs> so uh, Fear and Trembling is a contemplation on faith. 
right? And, and it's basically a, it's a contemplation on the meaning of the story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, so here, here's a little sample of, of Kierkegaard. Faith is precisely this paradox, that the individual, as the particular, is higher than the universal, is justified over against it. It is, is not subordinate, but superior. Yet in such a way, be it observed, that it is the particular individual who, after he has been subordinated as the particular to the universal, now through the universal, becomes the individual who, as the particular, is superior to the universal. For the fact that the individual, as the particular, stands in an absolute relation to the absolute. I'm not even going to try. Right? <laughs> what? <laughs> In, in, instead, uh, I'm going I'm to take you on a little historical walk with me in terms of how, when in my life this particular reading showed up, right, and the impact that it had on me. Uh, so it's, this isn't going to be a, an, um, an academic uh, introduction to Kierkegaard so much as a personal reflection. Uh, so anyways, you can kind of decipher what it says in there. Uh, so before I got to college where I read Kierkegaard, I was the son of uh, two a-religious people. My, da my daughter, my mother, uh, was raised Catholic um, outside of Philadelphia. And uh, my father was raised in the United Church of Canada. Um, neither of them were religious. I, I, in a sense, was the product of... Uh, um, processed food, mid-century North America, um, uh, grew up in a, in a, in a science-oriented world. Um, but by late adolescence, I started to realize that, that there was something I wasn't prepared for, right? And there was some, I felt like there was something missing in my life. Um, in, in the last year of high school, which in, in Canada is grade 13, so I was roughly the age of an American freshman in college, um, I, read a, I read a story in English class by Graham Greene called The Hint of an Explanation. Graham Greene, as I understand it, was a guy who either was born Catholic or, or chose to become Catholic. And The Hint of an Explanation is a story about... Uh, this man who tries to talk a little boy into getting him a wafer from church, right? And, and basically, it, it's uh, uh, as one recent summary that I read about, it said it's, it's a story about evil seduction and, and what I would say is spiritual yearning. And when I read that short story, it, it, sort, of, it sort of turned a light on in my head, which was there's there's something there's something more to life than just going about my business you know on based on certain uh what i would call bourgeois assumptions that if i go to school earn a degree i will i'll have a certain story about my life with a wife and children and uh, i'll work hard and i'll save money for retirement and live my whole life but then my mind started to think yeah but what hap what happens after that right um, I grew up in a household where there, there wasn't, I, there was never any explicit religious thought expressed in, in my in my household. 
mainly other than, you know, to listen to my mother, you know, rage against what she thought was the evils of a Catholic church. So that was, Graham Greene was sort of the beginning of like turning on a spiritual switch. Um, and then the next year I was in university and, and I, was, I was coming to terms with the, what I would call the dread of realizing that following in my father's footsteps directly by going into medicine was not what I wanted. It wasn't me. And I was in the bookstore and uh, in, a, in a kind of a depressed state, um, wanting to withdraw from most of my pre-med science classes. And in the bargain bin, $2.99, I found this photo book with, with an essay in it. And it was What I Believe by E.M. Forrester. And another switch was turned on. Uh, that, that essay by E.M. Forrester um, woke me up to the idea that uh, in contrast to Graham Greene, that a humanist could believe something and they could stand for something and that it could be just as moral as anything based on a God idea. Um, so those, those two trends, right? This sort of quest, spiritual question that Graham Greene turned on and, and the humanist impulse that, that E.M. Forrester turned on for me. Um, I, I went on, I transferred from University of Toronto, left pre-medicine, went to Clark University to study psychology. And um, while I was there pursuing what turned out to be an excellent psychology education, I was also listening to music. And Van Morrison was, uh, was a particular influence for me at the time. And, and just a few years before that, he'd come out with this album called Common One. Right. And it's sort of a, it's Van Morrison in, in his most Christian phase. If you know anything about Van Morrison, he kind of got rather Christian later in his career. Um, but the thing about Van was he's not a, uh, um, he's not doctrinaire and he's not dogmatic. He's a mystic. And uh, the song Summertime in England, <clears throat> which if you listen to the lyrics, it's it, in some ways it's very religious. But, but for me, what it tapped into was, was a spiritual, uh, an emotional, spiritual level. Um, and there's a, there's a lyric in, in the song when he gets into this. It's about a 14-minute song. It's a brilliant piece of music. But he gets to this point in the song where he starts to chant, when he whips himself up into this sort of mystical furor, and he, he starts chanting. And one of the things that he starts to chant is, it ain't why, 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 it ain't why, 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 it just is. Uh, which struck me as this sort of mystical attitude, right? That there was this, uh, which ran counter to something that was happening in my head at the time, which was intellectualism. I was very intellectual, very into ideas uh, in college. And here's Van, you know, getting into it, right? Mary Beth Music and I were talking about the, uh, the, the soulful impulse to, the, to music that, that we hope for in our, in our singing here in the congregation. And Van certainly represents that. And then another thing happened. We were, I was taking a psychotherapies class and <clears throat> in my junior year. And one of the things we studied all these different types of psychotherapy. And um, 
one of the things that this that the teacher did was he took us to the Worcester Memorial Auditorium one weekend. Uh, it's a very fascist-looking building, built built in the 1920s, and it's got the e you know Art Deco eagles on the building, and it was a, it was sort of a striking place to be. <clears throat> and we were there to witness a, a Catholic faith healing service. And this was this was an ordinary Catholic priest, but he was a priest that apparently went around North, uh, North America, or at least the United States, and did these faith healing services. And so there we were, about 10 undergraduate psychology students with a professor standing at the back of the, of the balcony at the back of the building, you know, sort of observing this faith healing service. And at one point in the service, the priest starts to chant, kind of like Van Morrison, and, he, and, he's, and he's imploring to the audience, get into the crib with baby Jesus, get into the cradle with baby Jesus, right? And he, and he was kind of whipping this unmediated mystical experience for the, for the audience. And it was like, a, it was like another reverberation of, of a, of a pole, I guess, of spirituality that I was kind of getting intimations about. So by this time, uh, halfway through, three quarters of the way through college, I, I did this. I did this directed reading with Leslie Glazer, and uh, you know, it, was, it sounded like an interesting uh, summer reading. Of course, uh, it, I was the only guy that signed up for it, so it turned into a directed reading rather than a, than a summer class. I guess everybody else was scared of it. Uh, little did I know. You know, it was called the the title of the of the class was the um, the pursuit of self realization. Sounded appealing to my intellectual soul, but that's where the anxiety sets in. I had uh, I developed panic disorder while I was in this directed reading. While I was reading Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard, right? I, I literally developed a panic attack problem. Um, and I think what was happening was um, I was waking up. I, I, was, I was sort of coming out of a, of a childish uh, denial, really. Um, so he, he has me read Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard. Now, I, I, maybe in a couple of years, I, if I keep rereading it, I could actually give you a, a comprehensible presentation on, on how he makes his arguments. But the, but the main point... <clears throat> of the book that I took away was in contemplating Abraham and Isaac. He's, he basically um, talks about faith. What is faith? And he, he describes these various levels of, of belief. And it's a, it's a very, I mean, it's a very interesting, very dense contemplation on on different attitudes towards morality and towards, but specifically towards faith, right? One's private, very private uh, relationship to God as one understands it. Um, and, he, and he does a, uh, he does a very, basically the, the point that he's making is, <clears throat> Abraham isn't like your ordinary 
attendee of church, right? He doesn't, he doesn't go to church and put on, put on the cloak of the believer and um, present himself as a hero, right? Uh, or even um, present himself as one who walks in the shoes of the hero. This is what, this is what Kierkegaard calls the universal um, the, or the ethical, right? And what I, when I was reading this book, I was thinking, Kierkegaard's basically blowing the average attendee of a Christian church out of the water, right? Apparently, one of the things that Kierkegaard was known for was nailing his own principles to the door of the Lutheran church, just like Luther had done the Catholic church. Um, and what he, if you, the, the one thing that I could kind of distill in my, in my reading from Kierkegaard was that uh, faith has nothing to do with public profession. And, <clears throat> you know, I see this, I, I won't go off on this tangent that I could go off on, but I see this in most organized religion, that, that to have faith is to somehow show up and be like other people and, and uh, take the steps and do the things that, is supposed to portray faith. And the point that he's making about I, uh, Abraham is that Abraham's faith is completely incomprehensible to other people. Why would a man be willing to kill his own son? Right? <clears throat> now, the first, the first time I read the book, it's like, oh, you know, faith is fanaticism. But, but then, I, then I, got, I kept reading and I kept thinking about it. And then when I came back uh, in the past couple of months and reread it, um, he's not talking about fanaticism. He's talking about a deeply private thing. Um, that might not, it, on the surface of it, doesn't make sense to, to the average observer. You know, why, why does somebody do what they do? <clears throat> most, of, most of what gets portrayed in our culture as faith community, as pe being a man or a woman of faith, is, is what Kierkegaard calls the, the, the ethical, right? Which is that on the surface of it, you seem to portray the ideal, the hero, right? The moral hero. And the, the main point that I took away from Kierkegaard and fear and trembling is is that um, this isn't faith is not tribal, although it often gets bastardized as tribalism. I mean, I sorry, I don't mean to offend, but that's my perspective on most churches. Is that there's this doctrine, and if you and if you follow that doctrine uh, in in the model of the hero, you have faith. Right? And everybody takes it at face value because you profess an identification with the hero and choose your religion, you can choose the hero. Is it working? No, you go. <clears throat> so uh, ever since then, I mean, the, the, the impact that this book had on me, an atheist not raised in religion, the impact that it had on me was whatever my whatever meaning my life is going to have. Um, 
it's going to be a, it's going to be a private one. And the reasons why I do any good thing that I might do, if if I ever do a good thing, um, it's going to be for deeply private reasons. Not not because I'm I'm doing it to to put on a show, right? Um, and to profess myself as a man of faith. Uh, I I can't convince you of uh, and you know the the point that he makes here and it was he was trying to get there with that paragraph that I was reading to you is um, we don't we don't get public accolation for what what he's calling faith or accolades uh, it's a private thing right um, so where did I go with this you know. Then if, then if Kierkegaard wasn't enough, he had me read uh, The Death of Ivan Illich by Tolstoy, right? Story of a, of a bourgeois bureaucrat dying, uh, writhing on his deathbed, dying from a horrible, uh, what was probably a gastrointestinal cancer. But in the story of Ivan Illich, he has a realization. And he, and he realizes how much of his life, in fact, his entire life had been wasted on, on meaningless bourgeois ideas. Uh, and that it's, but that it's never too late to become human, right? And Tolstoy in his Tolstoy, Tolstoyan way, right? Uh, points out that Ivan Illich had a, a full life in a matter of moments, right? Then, then, I, then I read The Denial of Death by, by Ernest Becker, right? In the, in the vein, he's a psychoanalyst. I was, I was an aspiring psychoanalyst when I was an undergrad. And uh, another, blew my mind, sort of dug in another layer of uh, panic disorder that I was experiencing at the time. Um, you know, when I started to contemplate the fact that everything that we're doing is in anticipation of death uh, or in the denial of death, um, he also had me read either or, which was further Kierkegaardian contemplation on you've got a choice to make in your life. You're either going to be what he calls a seducer or you're going to be the knight of faith, right? Uh, and then when you read Sartre in Being a Nothingness, he, he, Sartre gets to the same uh, dichotomy, right? Bad faith and good faith. Um, then he gave me a little respite from, uh, from all this contemplation on death. Uh, and he had me read an introduction to Zen Buddhism by D.T. Suzuki, which was, um, the way I think about it, it was the way of beginning to overcome my panic disorder, right? It's like, you can, you can learn to deal with it. Although... Uh, the, the subtitle of this presentation is I will never be prepared, <laughs> right? We're never going to be prepared for death. Um, but it got, it got me to thinking that <clears throat> I can live my life in a certain way, uh, a certain mindful way that I, that I can learn to be with myself, right? Uh, I was simultaneously learning in, in my psychology training about uh, psychological development uh, and attachment and the concept of separation and individuation, that how, how human beings learn to know their own mind, 
uh, and they learn to tolerate solitude. And given the right developmental um, experiences, they can internalize a sense of self and engage in self-regulation, which is what Zen Buddhism is all about. Maggie talked about this a few weeks ago in terms of the, the Zen focus on the meditative aspect of, of the Buddhist teachings. He also had me read I, Thou by Martin Buber. Um, and Buber was an introduction to um, what I guess I would call faithful relating. And as a psychologist, so I, through this period of time, I'm developing as a psychologist and I'm, and I'm beginning to think about, you know, well, what's important, you know, what's, what's meaningful based on the science that I know. And Buber was sort of the first integration for me of this sort of wondering about spirituality and the science of psychology that I was learning. And in, in his description of I-thou relating, he's describing um, what, what faithful human interaction might look like, right? And, and basically what he's referring to is, is operating on the assumption that oneself is, is a multifaceted subjective being and the other is a multifaceted subjective being. And relationship is where you actually pay attention to both, right? In all of their three-dimensionality. I'm not going to... Another book that I read at the time, which I, I'm, I'm not going to spend time talking about, but it was, a, it was an influential book for me. It was The Myth of the Eternal Return or Cosmos in History by Mircea Eliade. Uh, and in that, he, he sort of made all of the world's religions comprehensible to me in terms of uh, what Kierkegaard was calling the ethical story about the hero, right? That um, culture is built around um, an archetypal story that gets, that gets repeated, right? And, you know, f for me, the Christian story is no different than the Greek story, which is no different than the ancient pagan story. It's a cyclical story, right? About a hero. So I get into the phase of being a psychologist and in, in the, my contemplation about faith, right? And, you know, I've known a lot of religious people who've been very important to me. And I know that they have a deep um, theistic faith. Um, but I'm, at this point, I'd, I've sort of, I've sort of given up on the notion of, of God, right? Um, and a pursuit of the idea of God. Um, in my, in my psychological and my psychoanalytic training, uh, what I, what I've come to learn based on, on the, um, the thoughtful pursuit of inquiry of the human species is, is that, uh, the human mind is a complicated thing that it was evolved over billions of years, that it's um, not singular. Human beings do not have one mind. They're of multiple minds uh, and they're of conflicting motivations. And, and that uh, awareness and consciousness is a developmental achievement. It's not a given. As a, as a uh, radical statement, I would put it to you that, that um, 
the vast majority of the human species doesn't live consciously. Um, and there are a variety of, of thinkers in my psychological and psychoanalytic training that I've read, and in their, in their own terms, they all talk about the same three levels of existence that, that the human mind is capable of. Um, the, these terms that I've got here under the, the level of awareness and experience, um, I could teach semesters on each of those bullet points. But the, the point that I would want to leave you with here is that, is that the, the, the psychological science that I've, that I've spent my career living in, um, based on the science of the neurobiology of the mind, uh, has identified that there are three levels of, of existence that, that, we can, that we can know as, as human beings. And um, most of what I think is, is put out there in society as, as living on the basis of faith is really only in the second category, what Kierkegaard called the ethical or the universal, what, what various uh, psychoanalysts and psychologists have called the imaginary uh, or the paranoid schizoid position, that's a... Um, what, what, this, what this level of existence has is what, what Freud calls presentation, right? It's a first level of awareness where, you, where we're, we're, we're aware of ourselves and we're aware of the world. Um, but, it doesn't, but it doesn't broach alternative interpretations, right? Um, and in the course of reading all of these all of these uh, writers, there's, there's one French writer in particular, her name is Julia Kristeva, and she talks about this problem of the naturalization of the sign. And she's a, she's a French psychoanalyst, so she's very, her, her ideas are very much built on linguistics. And um, the, the, the reason why I bring up the naturalization of the sign idea is because what she's referring to there is in, in human culture, in the pursuit of human ideas, people, people try to find a conviction baseline for their thoughts, right? Van Morrison's lyric, it ain't why, 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 it just is, right? The, the average profession of faith is built on a conviction like that. And it's built on this idea that, well, why is it that way? Why is faith that way? Why are our beliefs that way? And the answer to that question is always because God said so. That's what Kristeva calls the naturalization of the sign, That's, that somehow human thought is, can be connected to an absolute ground of conviction that's not interpretable that's not open to alternative explanation or perspective. Um, and then more recently, um, I heard a great uh, comment by Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't know if, uh, to what extent you're, you, you know him, but he's the, he's the guy that took over for Carl Sagan on Cosmos on, uh, on television. He's a brilliant man. He's also a physicist, astrophysicist, but he's also a uh, devout atheist. And he pointed, he pointed out in this one video that I watched, he talked about 
the fact that there are three levels of truth, emotional truth, political truth, and scientific truth. Emotional truth being highly individual, uh, political truth being highly political, and uh, scientific truth being something a little bit more complex than that. Um, the, in, in the current parlance of, uh, of psychoanalysis, um, emotional truth and political truth are stuck in that second level of, of mind that I was talking about earlier. Um, Peter Fonagy calls this the, the level of psychic equivalence, where it's basically, I have a belief, I have a thought, and because I have that belief or thought, that's the way it is, right? This is, this is a level of emotional conviction that, you know, we're all prone to, we're all capable of. Our mind certainly generates that. The limbic system, the middle part of our brain, uh, creates that conviction mode for us uh, because there are some instances where we, we can't be broached in interpretation because we're about to be killed by a lion and we got to get out of the way, right? You, you can't be interpreting alternatives when you're functioning at a limbic level. The trouble is human society kind of pays a price if that's, if that's where we stay. Um, what, what Tyson is calling the, uh, the scientific truth, right? I see that as um, really the highest, the highest level of, of human existence that you can get to, right? Uh, what, what psychoanalysis calls mentalization and, and the inquisitive or intentional stance in contrast to the psychic equivalent stance. And, and the idea of the inquisitive or intentional stance, which is really the highest state of mind that we can get into, is the ability to assess our own and other people's intentions and to create alternative perspectives, including perspectives alternative to the ones that we hold deeply. Um, to differentiate our thinking and to integrate it, right? To be able to benefit from the, from the uh, outcome of other people's thought process instead of just being locked into our own thought process or our, our own identification with, with our tribe. So at this point, I've sort of gotten to a, uh, uh, I guess what I would call a mature sense of the idea of agency, right? That, that life and, and meaning is, a, is an intentional construction, right? Based on getting out of um, the, the narrow conviction of, of my own thoughts. Um, and that has to be an active process. Right. The, uh, there's a famous quote that was badly translated uh, from Freud. The bad translation was, where id was, there shall ego be. The actual translation of that quote is, there where it was, I must create myself. Right. There, there has to be an active process in that. Based on what Freud called the small, quiet voice of reason. Right. And when he's talking about, he's talking about the small, quiet voice in our head that combats the strong voice of conviction in our head. The other, the other, I, I use this quote in, in, a, in a group with, uh, I, I evaluate and treat physicians and surgeons for the living mostly, and we do a treatment group. And I was in, I was doing my treatment group with 
uh, with one group, and uh, I, I gave them this this Freud quote because I was pointing out to them: You're, in order not to lose your medical career, you have to be actively in charge of your own decision making. Most people come to us because they've gotten into a lot of psychological trouble, and the guy who's in the group says, "That sounds like Hillel." If, and I didn't know who Hillel was. Hillel is a Talmudic scholar in the first century, the Common Era, would have been an elder at the time that, that uh, the man called Jesus Christ was walking the planet. Um, and the quote from Hillel that he gave me was, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? And if I am for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So in, in, to close here, uh, in, in, the, in my psychological world, uh, psychoanalytically informed psychological world, uh, the, the, the concept that I'm, um, really the, the field has gotten uh, much beyond Freud at this point. Um, and Peter Fonagy is one of, the, one of the more articulate current psychoanalysts. And, and in his description of attachment, so I'm, I'm thinking, you know, how, how do we understand uh, human development, um, how we get from being a passive and dependent and helpless organism to being a self-determining, um, mentally sophisticated, uh, interpersonally empathic creature. And, and Fonagy and, and his folks who were doing a lot of research into attachment as the basis of mind, he points out, um, this is a this is a quote that I always come back to, the, and you know where where this whole line of research comes from is is the importance of attachment in in psychological development and the creation of the human mind. And he points out that what is lost in loss is not the bond, right? It's not just the biological connection to another creature that keeps you alive. Well, that's that's certainly where attachment starts, but it's not where it ends. What's lost in loss is not the bond, but the opportunity to generate a higher order regulatory mechanism. Attachment is a process that brings into being complex mental life from a multifaceted and adaptable behavioral system. Basically, what he's, what he's talking about here is that is a long and convoluted process. The, the human mind begins in attachment. It begins in the process where the, the parent or the caregiver is imagining the internal experience of the infant accurately, empathically, and in three dimensions. In other words, what they're describing is good enough parenting is an I-thou relationship like Buber defined it, except at the beginning, there's only an I. The thou is getting created through the process of, of the human organism raising its young, right? And then recently I read a book by E.O. Wilson, uh, you know, the uh, the biologist uh, called the meaning of human existence, and and basically it's a it's a scientific tour de force. Um, and for me, it's like I, I don't need to keep I don't need to keep thinking about um, personally. I don't need to keep thinking about God ideas of faith and and all the mystery of all of that. You know, he's, E.O. Wilson provides an unabashed, scientifically based understanding of how the human organism came to be, you know, as far as science has been able to intimate it. 
Uh, and here's a little quote. There's no predestination, no unfathomed mystery of life. Demons and gods do not vie for our allegiance. I'm gonna have, the bottom is chopped off, so I'm going to have to go to this. Instead, we are self-made, independent, alone, and fragile, a biological species adapted to live in a biological world. And, you know, what I'm, the reason why I brought up the quote from Peter Fonagy in Attachment Theory is, is that as a science, attachment theory and the psychoanalytic uses of attachment theory are explaining... Um, it's a psychological explanation uh, that, that fits to my thinking neatly with E.O. Wilson's um, evolutionary biological perspective, that the human mind, its inclinations, its tensions, its complexity, um, it, all, it all developed over a very long period of time. What counts for a long-term survival is intelligent, self-understanding based upon greater independence of thought than that tolerated today, even in our most advanced democratic societies. And this idea, uh, intelligent self-understanding, the point that I'm trying to make with the attachment theory is we can't have intelligent self-understanding without having intelligent other understanding. And ultimately, what leaves me cold about all of, the, all of the religious philosophizing about what the actual meaning of Abraham and Isaac is, is that I have no use, personally, for keeping things a mystery. I'll take science and reason any day. Let me leave it there. Oh, one, one last thing. I, I recently came across a, a fabulous book uh, by Alain de Botton. It's called Re Religion for Atheists, A Non-Believer's Guide to the Uses of Religion. And what I like about this book, and those are the chapter headings, what I like about this book is he's basically saying, these religious people, they have an idea about community and about, and about being with one another that we, that we atheists can co-opt. Thanks so much. You've left us some time for questions. Um, let's start with Zoom folks. Any questions out there? Well, Peter, this is John Brewer, and I'm so happy to have you back among our community. If I had to write a book called Fear and Trembling, it would be, I'm a student in Peter Graham's course, and I have a test that says, Here's an essay question. <laughs> and then I would have to remember all of my old BS skills from Western Civ at Stanford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I recognize all of the, uh, of the authorities that you mentioned, and I, I drew a really head, a strong, thick red line. I said, this, these are guys I'm not going to read because it would just give me a headache, and I've got better things to do. <laughs> Anyway, to be serious, uh, what I hear you talking about is what I would call a philosophy of soul. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are a few people like you, and not so much like me, who have this longing for some kind of depth. And I think they hope to find this 
in, in Unitarian Universalism in a way that is accessible and palatable and so forth. Mm. My major interest is in dispositional traits, why some people are extroverts or introverts or whatever. And I'm just wondering, since you have been a psychologist, if you feel that your own disposition for this longing is something that you were born with as a disposition, something you have seen in many other people, because to me it seems quite rare it demands so much persistence and, I would say, courage to, to dig the way you have dug that, uh, you know, I simply don't have that, uh, that dedication to. I mean, I was happy to, to ditch Methodism uh, a whole just because it was a great story. I thought that uh, I could continue being a good person and, and aspire to be somewhat Christian. But I didn't have this ongoing uh, hunger, I guess I would say. And so I'll leave the question there as to, is it a dispositional thing? Are there many people who, who do hunger the way you do? That's a good question. I mean, um, I, it's, a, it's a complex thing. I, th I think, oddly, the first thought that comes to my mind is there are actually religious, seemingly religious states of mind that can be conjured up by a lesion in the, in the temporal lobe, right? Extreme religiosity is often correlated with a temporal lobe problem. So there, there is this sort of, the, the aspect of religiosity, right? And preoccupation with that, um, some, in some cases can be exacerbated by a lesion in the limbic, in the, Temporal lobe. Um, I think that um, God. I haven't really thought about th that question, John. I mean, I think that there are different uh, diff different dispositions in terms of introversion, extroversion. Right? There are, I think, some people like Kierkegaard who are incredibly quiet, introverted, highly intelligent who also experienced certain um, developmental events in their lives. You know, a lot of what Kierkegaard got into writing about was after he had lost what, what he thought was going to be a, a simple bourgeois marriage to a woman he was in love with. Um, there are other people, I think people in the, uh, in the religious community who don't they, they, they put on what Kierkegaard would call the, the ethical, universal, heroic pretensions of religiosity, when in fact what they're being is what he calls a seducer um, and, and sort of portraying a, 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 what seems like a deep pursuit of inquiry uh, when, when really they're, they're putting on a, an aesthetic show. Um, I think that... Uh, you know, I, I know some people who live lives of deep faith who you, you might describe as being uncomplicated, simple, um, not particularly intellectual, right? And I, I, admire, I admire that. It's a different state of mind. Um, I mean, for me, I think an element of, of the pursuit that I've gone on uh, is because of the, the childhood dependence that I had on 
a community of people who've made their living off of seeming to be deep and have having lots of insight, right? So I, I spent the first third or almost half of my life pursuing an identification with what I thought was the most admirable way to be. Um, I haven't spent my entire life that way. I haven't, I mean, most of the stuff I read 30 years ago. I, I've, I've read a lot of science since then. Um, that's a hard question to answer, John. <laughs> Um, I, I'm glad to get this opportunity to meet you. Uh, I was here before you were here, and then I've come back now in, in retirement. But I, uh, I appreciate very much the perspective you lent in terms of tying all of this together in terms of a view. And one thing that's been troubling me lately, and I'm, I've been rejecting it for its sophistry or that, that's my opinion yeah. is this new term that's come into our vernacular in the last few years and it's been tossed around a lot and it's being tossed around a lot i'd like to get your reaction to the term woke yeah yeah because i i think it uh well <laughs> well the the yeah i have lots of thoughts on that subject and it ties in nicely with the religious point that I was making, one of the religious points that I was making here, which is that what Kierkegaard is calling the ethical universal heroic stance creates rigidity. It, it creates conviction, what I was calling the conviction mode, that the, it ain't why, 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 it just is. And um, when you're in that state of mind, um, other states of mind that, that are asking you to think from a different perspective, those, those other states of mind are threatening. And I, I think that there's a, there is a, there's a tribe in American culture that, that insists on, on a certain worldview. They want to turn this country into a theocracy. And um, woke, woke, I think, you know, the, the purveyors of, woke, of the word woke don't, can't even define the word. You've probably seen that, that meme, it's hilarious. But um, woke, woke is, a, uh, is a red meat dog whistle for closed-mindedness, uh, a religion, a rigid, a religion, a rigid religious <laughs> perspective on the world, right? A reductionistic, unitary, I should say singular, um, you know, broaching no alternatives view of, of American culture. Um, thankfully, everything good that's ever come from the Western mind and and in American culture has come from opening our minds up to alternatives, not closing our mind. And I, uh, just like Freud believed in the small, quiet voice of reason, I have a small, quiet chunk of faith that the arc of justice is long, but it bends toward the truth. Well, there are lots uh, more questions. So let's thank Peter again and move up.
Here's a preview of next week's All Souls Forum, working with Frank Lloyd Wright, which is an interview with Professor Kelly Oliver, an associate of Frank Lloyd Wright's, with Frank Barron. The, uh, the framework for the exhibit uh, was a scaffolding system, and the, the company was a uh, scaffold company. It erected the, the framework uh, that we later on uh, applied panels to to form the uh, exhibit. I think the panels are showing up here, aren't they? Yes. And so you might be one of those people working here. It's possible. The, the solid panels, of course, were, the, were roofing the exhibit. The vertical panels on the other side um, were um, corrugated glass panels, and very heavy. Um, and the workmen uh, shied away from doing the work. The union didn't like the appearance of safety that might be involved. So Jim Pfefferkorn and myself uh, did the glass panel installation. We worked from a scaffold and uh, the workman would pass up the, uh, the glass panels to us. Jim had designed a little metal clip that we could put the panels into to support them and, and lock them in at the top. And that is uh, what created a great deal of the lighting for the exhibit. Well, I mean, you had you were under great pressure to complete this, and then at the same time, practically, there was a, an event in Chicago uh, that uh, needed attention. In this case, the planning got pretty tight. Uh, the Goodman Theater uh, performance was slated to um, begin at a certain time, and the construction of the uh, exhibit in New York had uh, run over its time a little bit, so they were coming in pretty close at the same time. In other words, some of the people working on the exhibit were also some of the dancers for the performance in the Goodman Theater. Maybe you could say, for somebody who doesn't know much about Mrs. Wright, uh, I mean, they, this marriage uh, uh, was about 30 years, and she played a pretty important role, didn't she? And Mrs. Wright was the, uh, you might say Mrs. Wright, uh, ran the uh, fellowship and Mr. Wright ran the drafting room. Um, it wasn't quite divided that way completely, but they did overlap occasionally. And this was an occasion when we had a real overlap. And uh, the, the uh, dance group that uh, Yvonne had put together uh, Ivana is the daughter, and she had some training in uh, Paris, didn't she? Yes. 
Yovana uh, had trained in Europe with Gurdjieff and had learned the, uh, the movements, um, which was part of Gurdjieff's uh, training for self-improvement. And uh, had in the process developed a, a, a performance uh, that included costuming as well as the dance. I think everyone was pretty much on edge until we finally uh, pulled it off, but uh, it did work and we got both of the performances, so to speak, completed. What follows now are two really important projects that you were involved in. And this is the, the from above, the Gillen House, uh, can you talk about that a little bit, how, uh, who Gillen was and how you uh, got involved in, in this project? Thanks for listening. Now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon following immediately and for the Happy Hour at 3 p.m followed by the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.